Okay, if you have your Bible open, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We are making our way. We are on the home stretch of our journey through 1 Corinthians. And if you are new here this morning, this is kind of our custom. We'll pick a book of the Bible or a theme of Scripture, and we'll just preach through it. And what this does is it makes us deal with difficult texts. It doesn't allow us to just jump around to the things that we like. It makes us have to work through things that are challenging. And that's where we get to in this passage today, a challenging passage. Now, I just want to take a moment uh, to, to pause here and recognize the fact that if you have missed a sermon or two, these are all building on top of each other. Uh, but thank you to Steve Haney. We have a podcast ministry uh, where you can go look up our sermons online and you can listen to them to catch up with where we're at. So uh, thank you, Stephen. Uh, that resource is available to us as we seek together to grow God's, in God's word together. And today we're getting to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where we're continuing our discussion on the spiritual gifts or the grace gifts as we saw in chapter 12. And what we're going to do in chapter 14 is we're going to break this into two sermons because there are two primary issues that Paul is dealing with that gets a lot of attention. It's tongues and prophecy. And how do we deal with tongues and how are we to deal with prophecy? So we can ask all the questions uh, within this text and I want to give us ample time to do this. I make no claim that I can do all of this uh, well, or in a, a short sermon this morning, because this text naturally, it naturally is going to make us ask a lot of questions about what it means to speak in tongues, who speaks in tongues, how should we handle this. But there are two sides of the ditch that we can fall into. The first side is we can look at this text and we can ask all the questions. We can ask every single question and try and get every answered uh, every question answer that we want, and we miss Paul's main point in this text. Or we can fall on the other side of the ditch and say, no questions, this is weird, I'll never deal with it again, and just move on and not see how it applies to us today. So running into this week from last week, here's a reminder of what our main point was last week. It should be on the screen. Our main point last week is love is not a higher spiritual gift. In fact, love is a more excellent way, a manner of life in which all gifts in the life of the church is to find their place. Paul expects all of us to operate in this manner of love. He'll say not everyone has every spiritual gift, but everyone should operate in the manner of love. And today our main point is going to continue off of this idea from Paul. We're going to see two things highlighted over and over again in this text. The two main points are this is that we are to pursue love and the actions and gifts that build up the body of Christ. So as we read this text and you have questions about tongues and what this means, let this be your center. Let this tether you to what the text means, that we are to pursue love and the actions and gifts that build up the body of Christ. There are two things that I want to highlight before we read this passage that will help us to understand this passage. The first one is this. When we get to a passage that is difficult to understand, we need to treat the text as it is. So this is a reminder that this is a letter from Paul. He's writing to a very specific group of people in a very specific culture at a very specific time. 
we do not have the letter that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul. So we're reading someone else's mail. We're having to fill in a lot of the gaps. So you'll see where Paul makes a very pointed argument or responds to a very specific question. Well, we don't have that question. We have to infer from the text. A lot of our problems can come when we approach the text like a theological textbook. And what happens is when we do this is we put our own expectations on the text that the text was never meant to match. That's because this is a letter and we need to treat it as such. The second thing, and this is the most challenging, it's, it's often the most challenging for me, is when we approach a challenging text like this, is to leave our baggage at the door. Just check it at the door, whatever your experience has been with tongues or with the Spirit or whatever you have been raised to believe, we want the text to influence how we think and respond. So as hard as it is, we've got to leave our baggage at the door. I mean, consider it this way. You can see people that have wrestled with the Bible in ways that it was not meant to answer, like a person who's trying to determine if they think God is good or evil, and they think he's evil. And so if they go into the text thinking that God is evil, what do you think they're going to notice? All the really hard passages that, that they have a tough time making sense of. So what we want to do is let the passage speak for itself. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 25. It will be on the screen. Paul says this, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if you... If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God 
that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outside enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Okay, there's a lot here in this passage, is there not? But I want to show you that the two things that Paul continues to repeat in this passage. It is the pursuit of love, but then it is also the building up of others. It's the building up of others and not of ourselves. Those are the two imperatives through this passage. Now first, the pursuit of love. We spent a lot of time on this last week, but it bears repeating because this is the thrust where all the issues from the church at Corinth are stemming from, is that they do not have love for one another. They would rather divide and build themselves up than love one another. And to pursue love is to pursue this patient, kind, rejoicing with the truth, protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering love. We are to run from the envious, boastful, prideful, self-seeking, dishonoring, angry, and bitter life that building ourselves up promotes. And this is the pursuit. This is what Paul wants us to pursue. And this pursuit is active. Why do we pursue this? Last week we saw it's because Jesus commands it. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. This is an imperative. It is a non-negotiable. For us to be a, a church together, we commit to loving one another. We, we don't get to say, well, I just don't like the way you are. And we pull away from one another. No, we are to push into the difficult circumstances of life. Who else, who else will run into broken marriages and help them try to mend it? Who else will run into sickness and hurting and death and mourning and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? This is how they will know that you are mine, Jesus says, is they will know you by our love. And this is our pursuit. Second, it's to build up four times in this portion of Scripture, and I believe it's seven times in this entire section altogether, that Paul encourages and exhorts for them to build up the church. And this has been another emphasis in the past two chapters in 12 and 13, is that these gifts are being manifested in the body, but Paul says this is not the premier most important thing. What is most important is the body of Christ and your love for one another. If I speak in tongues of angels and, have love, and do not have love, I am nothing. He says, if I know all mysteries and fathom all knowledge and all of these things but don't have love, I am nothing. So we are to pursue and build up one another. And this is exactly what we see happening in the first church. 
in Acts chapter 9. If you want to flip over there, it'll be on the screen. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. This is what it says about the church. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being what? Built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. We walk in the fear of the Lord. We walk in humility under the lordship of Jesus. But what comes with that humility? Comfort by a spirit. And this is what we are to comfort others with, is to build them up. So, where does tongues fit into all of this? Like, is this all that we're supposed to see? You know, we, this should be it. Pursue love, build one another up. We don't need to worry about the tongues thing, but we do. We, we do need to ask these questions because there is so much controversy surrounding the gift of tongues. The exercise has led uh, to exaggerated emphasis by some, elevating the purpose of tongues beyond what the New Testament teaches. They will teach that speaking in tongues is the penultimate sign that a believer has received the, uh, the Holy Spirit and that they are saved. They believe and they will teach that unless you speak in tongues, you are not saved. But here's what we need to see from the scriptures. Jesus never says this. Paul never says this. What do we read in our responsive reading this morning in Acts chapter 2? In Peter's sermon, they say, brothers, what should we do? And what's Peter's response? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ closed. And then what? You will receive the Holy Spirit. You repent and believe, and that is it. There is no emphasis or instruction that there is going to be a sign for everyone to speak in tongues to show that they are saved. And this is what Paul says in his letter. Not all of you have the same gift. Not all of you speak in tongues. So what are the examples of tongues that we have in Scripture? Uh, speaking in tongues is only mentioned uh, in two books of the New Testament. It's mentioned here in 1 Corinthians, and it's mentioned a few times in Acts. Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost, Acts 10 at Caesarea, and then Acts 19 in Ephesus. There is no reference to speaking in tongues in the Gospels, which if, if this was uh, an emphasis behind our salvation, you would think this would be a key theme from Jesus. Like if he wants, or if he desires all men to be saved, you would think that he would mention this at least one time for us, right? But in the story, in the life of Jesus, this is not mentioned by him. Speaking in tongues is only mentioned in one of the four letters where a list of spiritual gifts are given, and that's in 1 Corinthians. So how should we view the gift of tongues, and what should we think about it? This is amazing. This is so awesome. I want to take you through the journey of the Bible to see how all of this comes together. If you've been at Alpine uh, for any period of time, my hope is that uh, you will see, we'll begin to see with each other how Scripture is layered on top of each other and how we are supposed to interpret Scripture with Scripture and how this illuminates the entire text to have one unified story in Christ Jesus. So when we get to Acts chapter 2, something really surprising happens. The Spirit of God comes on them. And a sound of rushing wind breaks through and fills the house. It says, tongues of fire rested on each head, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This sounds bizarro, right? Like a tongue of fire resting on someone. What are we to make of this? How are we to even put these pieces together? Let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and then I'll show you how this connects through the rest of the Old Testament. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, 
They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What I want us to see here is these two images, wind and fire, they may seem bizarre to us, but these would actually resonate deeply with the first readers of the Bible. When the presence of God shows up, it, is often, it often shows up in a powerful wind or with fire. Let's look at Exodus 19. Exodus 19, one of the first times that God's presence appeared to all of the Israelites in a tangible way was at the foot of Mount Sinai. So to catch us up with the story, the Israelites had just left Egypt. They were on their journey. They were following Moses and trying to keep his covenant. And the covenant would be this, is that they, if they kept the covenant, they would become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this is what God wants for the people. Moses proceeds to consecrate them, preparing the nation for this specific role, to be a priestly kingdom, to make God's name known. And it says this in Exodus 19, starting in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder. There were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. You know, God is so powerful. He has to make uh, sort of this sort of introduction make sense, right? He comes in a powerful storm, a rushing wind, and it's accompanied by trumpet blasts, smoke, and fire. Do you see this? When God's presence shows up, wind and fire are there in Exodus. But this isn't the only place where we see God's presence depicted in this way. In Leviticus 9, verses 22 through 24, what we have here is the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests. The Lord has accepted Aaron's offering, and Aaron blessed the people. As this happens, the glory of the Lord appeared before all the people. Let's read. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from, the offering, the, from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces." Now, back in Exodus, we saw that God wants the entire people of Israel to be a kingdom of priests, but they turned down this opportunity. They're too terrified to come up to the mountain. Now, in Leviticus 9, we see that the presence of God was more fully experienced by a larger group of people, Aaron's family, the Levites, but this is still not what God wanted, according to Exodus 19. He desires for an entire kingdom of priests. And this is what Moses alludes to in Numbers 11, where he says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. This isn't the only time that we see the Lord appear in wind and fire. Think of the example in 1 Kings 8, where Solomon had just finished the temple, and the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant, where the Lord's presence dwelled, and again, in 1 Kings, a cloud 
or wind fills the temple. In the parallel version in 2 Chronicles, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The prophet Joel speaks of the future when the spirit of the Lord will be poured out on all people. He says, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Okay. So I know we've just covered a lot, but here are three instances, and there are many more instances in Scripture where the Lord's presence appears as wind and fire. Now let's read Acts 2 again, and it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. What is miraculous about this moment? Is it, was there a flaming tongue or a mighty rushing wind? no. That's not what's miraculous. What's miraculous is that God's presence is with them. That's what's miraculous. Now, this isn't the only thing that's happened, happening at Pentecost. Remember in Genesis 11, the story of Babel. What's happening in this story is that a group of uh, people are trying to build this tower to make a name for themselves, that they will reach into the sky and become like God. And what does God say? Let us go down and scatter their languages. This is exactly what happens. God divides them into different languages and tongues. And now here we have at Pentecost the reversal of Babel happening, where man could never elevate himself to become like God. What is required is that God comes down to us to make us like him in Christ Jesus. And this is the sign. This is what would be preloaded into their brains, is that God's presence is physically, tangibly with them, and that this is the great reversal now, where he is making a nation of a kingdom of priests. We see this in Acts, where it says this in Acts 2.8, and now we hear each of us in our own language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, along to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. This is the reversal of what God is doing in Jesus. So what do we know about tongues? First, it's deeply connected in the Old Testament, where God's presence shows up and where God unites us to himself. Second, we see this, that tongues are a real language. The tongues that spoken on the day of Pentecost were real human languages. The variety of nations represented would certainly confirm this. Everyone hears in their own tongue. Second, we do see that Tongues does appear to be an angelic language. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am nothing. What this means for us is that the first instance of tongues is primarily a use to show that God's presence is with them and to proclaim God coming to them in Christ Jesus. But some have read these passages not as a unique moment in time, but as a standard for those who want to be saved. They will read these passages as a representation of what should be present in people if they truly believe. However, Paul contradicts that. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, are all apostles? No. 
Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. If this was a requirement, you would think Paul would make this incredibly important in this text. But what is the requirement from Paul? Pursue love. Build up the body. And these are the two instances that we see as the reversal of Babel, God uniting the nations, and as a private prayer language. So where should this leave us today? Like we've talked about a lot of different things. Is the gift of tongues available to us today? Does it manifest to us today? Maybe. But you see, within our congregation, we are all from Grant Rapids Parish. We all speak in one tongue. Is there a need for us to speak in another language at this moment? No? If there's not, then why would God manifest the gift of tongues in that way? doesn't need to. I've heard stories of missionaries who have been on the mission field, who have had difficult times uh, proclaiming or, or teaching someone, but then the Lord shows up and they're very clearly able to understand each other in a different dialect or tongue. Can the Lord operate in this way? Who am I to say, no, he cannot? The Lord wants to make his name known. But what is clear from this passage, what is clear for us today, where we should leave this, is to pursue love. And how do we pursue love? By seeing the God who pursues us. Peter, after the miraculous uh, day at Pentecost. These are his words. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. How incredible is that? Death could not hold Jesus. And here's what this passage means. That if you come to Christ Jesus in faith, if you repent and believe in Jesus as Lord, death cannot hold you down. You will walk from life to life in Christ Jesus. This is the message of the gospel, that Christ died for the sins of many. And if you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. We pursue love by understanding the God who has pursued us by his love. What motivated him to come? Guilt, force, pushing him? No, it's his love for you. His love for you. And if you are here wondering if God loves me, can God really love me with the mess of life that I've made, with everything that I've done, hear me very clearly that God loves you, he sees you, he knows you, and if you stand in Christ Jesus, he is for you. The next emphasis from this passage we should see is to build the church. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. He says this, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, what's the spiritual gift that he wants to impart? that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What's the purpose 
to build up, to strengthen, to encourage, to exhort. These are the emphasis of the spiritual gifts. So how should we view tongues today as not the ultimate, as a gift of grace that God could give us in a very specific time, but for us as a church at Alpine, we are to pursue love and to build one another up. Let's pray together. Father, there's a a lot of things um, in your word that uh, are difficult for us to understand. And so, Father, I pray that you give us this gift of grace to help us to understand, to fathom uh, the mysteries and the knowledge that are in your text that you've revealed to us by your Son and through your Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that um, we don't push away from things, but, Father, that we take you at your word to pursue love, desire the gifts that build up the church. Father, I pray that you can make Alpine a church that loves, exhorts, encourages, and that we be mutually encouraged by each other's faith until you call us home or until you return. Jesus, I pray for the people in this room uh, that they, like the day at Pentecost, that we all be convicted to our core, the sin in our life. Father, and that we seek to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of your spirit would be with us all. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.